Hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Imports. That's a quality podcast by Merch Brown. Hello, I'm George Chuson. I'm your host. And today, for the first time, we're actually in audio and video, which you can see up there. So today we're going to be talking a little bit around quality. Now, quality is pretty important when we talk around importing things, especially from China. And indeed, Merchbrot is actually a quality control company rather than a sourcing company. Um, So we're going to talk around quality, what it means to us, and a little bit about how we get to those quality, you know, those how how we get to that quality um, peace of mind and the things that we put in place to ensure that we have quality. So so the title of the podcast today is The Most um, Valuable Skill in Quality is Measuring. Now, we're going to be talking around measuring what it means to quality and how the two really work together. So what we go and measure to ensure that we get quality because there's a fine balancing act. So I'll start by asking a question. Now, what does it mean? Or what does quality mean to you? Uh, and it was a question that was posed to me when I used to work in quality in um, the automotive industry. And quality means different things to different people. And if you've heard on some of the previous podcasts that if things mean different things to different people, then it's kind of subjective and really where you want quality to be is objective which means that we need to go and measure the things because if you bring data into the situation you're making things less objective and more objective and obviously when we have the more objective things the more tangible things we can measure that and that's where we get to meet our quality criteria so how can we define quality really Because we know when something's of poor quality, it doesn't fit, it moves around, it's a bit loose, and it doesn't doesn't do what it says on the tin. You know, possibly it fails prematurely, or it doesn't operate the way that it should, or that we we want it to operate in. So subsequently, you would suggest, or it would be common sense, to then think that the opposite end of the spectrum to something not operating or not working would be good quality or excellent quality. Well, it turns out that it's not as simple as that. And I'd like to take um, the time today to explain why that is. So let's start out with a conundrum. So the aeronautical industry has some of the strictest regulations when it comes to safety and quite rightly so. It probably has some of the highest standards of any industry. Um, Well, and that's pretty much because (laughs) pre-COVID times, uh, 176,000 individual flights actually operate each day. And even with um, a safety regulation of somewhere in the region of 98%, which is normally what people operate to when they're conducting you know, the generic safety standards. If we if we ran to that sort of safety regulation in the auto, uh, aeronautical industry, then you'd have 2% of 
of planes failing, you know, each time they operated. So that's not exactly where you want to be. So that's why the aviation industry has very, very strict regulations. And at the center of the majority of the aeronautical travel, it bases itself upon the turbine, the engine, if you like. So let's take that engine, and we know the turbine, the engine, let's say. Um, now, the plane engines, from an internal perspective, look very, very complex. And indeed, they, you know, they probably are. But the fundamentals of the concept are quite elementary in the, the fact that you have a big blade spinning, and air comes in. It's then mixed with fuel, ignited, and then spat out the back. Um, as a jet. So to produce enough thrust from these engines, which fundamentally are just orifices that are producing superheated exhaust gases, thrusting them out the rear. Um, now to produce enough thrust for a plane to take off, then these turbine blades need to be spinning very, very fast. And uh, I think at the top of my head, they're, they're spinning around 20,000 RPM. Now, to put that into context, 20,000 RPM is almost triple the red line on your um, your car, you know. So your the engines are spinning at cruising altitude at 20,000 RPM, or let's say takeoff at 20,000 RPM, which is three times faster than you driving around in your car, your crankshaft spinning inside at, let's say, 6,000 RPM. So... Those turbine blades are spinning um, an amazing at an amazing speed. So, how is it that you can ensure the quality of these turbine blades when they are spinning exceptionally fast? And if one was to break at um, I don't know a takeoff or during cruising, then the safety implications of this would have massive ramifications for not only the airline industry itself, but the people on board the planes and also the passengers that normally take the flights. You know, if you started having a failure of turbine blades that turned into a bit of an epidemic, then the safety impact that it would have upon airline standards and um, passengers actually flying would take a bit of a, it would have a bit of a hit up on it. So. So actually, what engineers do is they grow the turbine blades. Now, that sounds like a strange thing to say, but there's actually a process called the Brigman method, which is whereby a single um, piece of metal is grown from a single crystal um, on the ground, in the ground even. And it's that actual piece of metal that these turbine blades are made from. And the reason for that is that you stop the slip planes. If you imagine a, a, a deck of cards, the actual slip planes of normal pieces of metal um, are able to split, and that's where you get fatigue. And you get fatigue and things break. So to reduce the, the opportunity for fatigue to propagate in these stress areas, which is the actual in-between the slip planes of the material, 
then the turbine blades are made out of one single piece of metal. Now, that's to ensure that the, the turbine blades are as, um, as safe as possible. You don't get any propagation of stress in between the slip planes and the turbine blades don't shatter and then, you know, break, break apart. So you have to admit it then that the blades are of high quality um, and indeed if you do have a look at a turbine blade they are a quality piece of engineering. But here's the conundrum, right? You wouldn't use a turbine blade as a, an office chair. Now I know that sounds like a strange thing to say but you wouldn't. You wouldn't use a turbine blade to sit on and conduct work during a day, day's work at your computer. So I know that's a strange thing to say, uh, and you'd be like, well, of, of course not. First of all, that statement doesn't make sense. And then secondly, why would you be using the turbine blade to sit on? Because uh, one one small slip and you've got a nice big, you know, arsehole slit up you. You'd be taking a trip to hospital, which means that you wouldn't actually have to go to work. Well, so I don't know, maybe you want to sit on a turbine blade or not. But that doesn't then mean that the turbine blade is of poor quality because it doesn't function as your office chair. Think about it. You know, you wouldn't go and say, well, yes, that turbine blade has cut me, but it's not a poor quality. It's just that wasn't the correct thing to be using at that period in time for the actions that I was trying to use it in or the environment that I was trying to use it in. So there we have it, that's the conundrum of quality. And it's an un some people have a bit of a strange understanding of quality when they go, well, that's of poor quality. And it's like, well, no, not necessarily that component is of poor quality. It's that you're using it in the incorrect fashion or the way or in a way that it wasn't designed to be used. So there we go. I mean, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a, a conundrum to begin when you're saying something has been designed, manufactured, and tested correctly, but then it's poor quality because it's being used incorrectly. So quality is really a direction function of the tests to that component, and it has to pass those tests to be able to call the component of high quality. So those tests are very important to get right from the start. You know, if, for example, we were able to mold a cheese into a turbine, let's say, and run it in an engine, you know, of course, it wouldn't last very long. But does that mean that the cheese is a poor quality? You know, maybe that cheese was a very good quality cheese. Maybe it was a Swiss Gruyere. I think that's how you pronounce that. That's how I always pronounce it. Not that I eat that very often, but... Does it mean that you were using a good quality component in an incorrect fashion or were you using a poor quality component in the correct fashion? And it all comes down to the environment that you're using it in. So we need tests and we need tests that are actually derived from real world uses, environments 
environments that we want to be using the component in and then we want to use those same tests to test the components and ensure that the, the components that we are testing pass the tests that we've made to actually quantify the uses of that component in that environment. So it's why it's extremely important to understand the environments that you are going to be using the components in. And in the automotive industry, which is my background, what we used to do, we used to um, have development cars if we were testing components and we would um, put uh, sensors onto the development cars and go and drive them in real world um, test cases and then find out the loading on certain components. And then we would develop tests based upon that data that we got from real world testing to then simulate tests on rigs. So we would we would run, for, say for example, um, things called key life tests on the differentials, which is the components that I used to own. And that, that information was actually derived from data from real world examples of driving. And if I recall correctly, the, the, the majority of the stresses on the driveline or the peak stresses on the driveline in vehicles was derived from sand driving where you get a lot of stick slip in the stand, sand. So what we used to do is get the data from real world examples and we used to de develop um, tests that would um, simulate those real world environments and ensure that the components that we are designing um, meet and exceed those test specifications and standards. So it's very important when we talk about quality to ensure that we understand what we are going to go and measure and the data um, that we need from the tests. Because the data from the tests will go on to ensure that we have tests in the future that are derived from real world examples. So that this, this measurement of real-world examples ensures that we're testing as accurately as possible, um, proving against our testing standard, and it's going that the component is going to work for as long as it's required in the environment, in the range of operating parameters. So you could almost say that there were no instances of components of good quality. Um, they are components that work in the environments that they've been designed to be in and that actual ability for them to be able to operate in that um, envelope of environment is quality and the actual good quality comes from not just the components but the tests and the standards that they were made to because this is the measurements that were taken or this is because the measurements were taken when designing the test specification were well documented and understood by the engineering department behind making the components. So the most important skill in quality is not the measurement of quality itself, because how could you measure that against something that you don't understand? But it's more a measurement of the requirements of the component, giving the component a level of quality that is acceptable for the environment it's used in for the correct period of time. So how do we get 
to those uh, quality standards or standards of design that we need to make. Well, first of all, there's a, a very big documentation um, called the ISO, which is the International Standards Organization, which that's what they do. People submit standards to them um, and then people work to those standards in the future, meaning that if you've got a design specification of something, then you are going to apply that design standard to that component to ensure that it will work as understood or as expected in those environments that it's going to be used within. So we talked about standards a little bit in the past, um, so I won't go into them too much today. But what I want to get through to the new importers that may be listening to this podcast is that you need to have these standards and these test um, test specifications before you go to suppliers. Because if you go to suppliers and you haven't got these test standards and the suppliers may not be um, maybe forthcoming with their uh, their capability in producing components, then you want to be really ensuring that the capability of the, the supplier um, and, and the capability of the component that the supplier is going to be, u- uh, be producing will be made to standards that you've understood that have been derived from real-world examples. And hopefully you've got some data in your back pocket to say, look, these are my customers, these are, these are the environments that they're going to be using them within. This is the expectation that the product should be meeting um, and get them documented. And then when you put them into the RFQ, as we discussed in the previous episode, that the, the RFQ is actually the place that you put these standards into and you get the supplier to buy into actually producing the, the products to this standard. So... It's all about standard and measurement to um, those standards. So once you've got this component produced and you've got the component in your hand, I'm just going to pick something up here. So once you've got this component produced and you've um, got it towards the end of the line, the, the manufacturer has made it, you want to be using the same testing standards or the same standards that you've used to produce the component to be testing it as well. So in my hand, for those people viewing on the video, um, you can see it, but obviously people who are just listening, I've got a, a ruler in my hand. Now, a ruler is a, a measurement device in itself. So the actual specifications that you need to be working to for just something as similar as a ruler are, are quite, it's quite a good example because a ruler needs to, to actually um, be made to a standard and the standard is the measurement, in this case, is centimetres. And you need to be actually working to um, a, a specification within a tolerance, uh, a specification and a tolerance, which would be that one centimetre on our ruler needs to be actually one centimetre, and we'd have to then test that at the end of line. So you want to be actually using the testing standards that you've used in your initial RFQ, your sourcing, to then retest the components. Because if you then go to go, well, I've got this component at the end of the line, I want to test it, and uh, yeah, it's it's not actually um, one centimeter isn't one centimeter. Well, that might be because your actual your actual standards at the start in your sourcing um, weren't 
they weren't correct or you didn't stipulate it or you didn't say they need to have a straight edge. You need to ensure that your standards are there and also that you are communicating those standards with your supplier and also that at the end of the process and you've got your components at the end of the line that you are checking the component and you're measuring the component against those standards that you used to derive those test specifications. So hopefully that kind of gives you an idea about how we bring measurement into quality um, and how you can start to think about quality and measuring things and then having your testing standards and then applying those testing standards not only to um, components but then also applying those test standards to your initial sourcing and maybe into your RFQ as well when you're actually going to suppliers. I think in the next episode what we're going to be talking around is maybe taking some of those testing standards and having a look at them in detail and actually going through and having a look in granularity about what it means and how we can actually look at implementing some of those test specs in, um, let's say, in China. We've done a recent job um, quite recently where we have taken some components um, that were uh, made in in, in Europe We've got the specifications of them and we've gone away and tested similar components in China. So I think it'd be a good thing to have a look at about how we went and did that. But hopefully you've enjoyed today's podcast. Hopefully you've watched it on the internet as well. Um, Yeah, so thanks very much for joining us and I'll um, see you next time. Bye bye.